In Ohio's most densely populated counties, finding a lawyer is relatively easy. Seven counties in the state, including Cuyahoga and Summit, have 75% of the state's lawyers. But if you have legal trouble or need legal help and live in Ohio's mostly rural counties, finding a lawyer to represent you is much harder. 82 of the state's 88 counties are considered underserved. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. Today, we'll start with a conversation with Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy about a new initiative to get more lawyers to take up practice in rural areas. Later, with early voting about to begin in Ohio's primary, we'll talk about how primaries work. Plus, with the current election heading towards a likely 2020 presidential rematch, is Ohio's primary relevant? Those conversations are coming up. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Good morning, and thanks so much for joining us. The seven most populous Ohio counties have 75% of the state's attorneys, including Cuyahoga and Summit in Northeast Ohio. Meanwhile, 82 of Ohio's 88 counties are considered underserved, which, according to the Ohio Access to Justice Foundation, means there are more than 700 people in the population for every attorney. And in some cases, much more. For instance, Harrison County on the eastern side of the state has roughly 15,000 residents, but only 13 active attorneys. That's less than one lawyer per thousand residents. The Rural Practice Incentive Program, which was created last year through the Ohio Department of Higher Education, hopes to address this shortage by repaying student loans for qualifying attorneys in these communities. Joining us to discuss this program and the legal gap in the state is Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy. Chief Justice, thank you so much for your time and for calling in this morning. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity. And if you in our audience have any questions for the Chief Justice or would like to participate in the conversation, call 866-578-0903. We are phasing out our 216 number. So again, the toll-free number, 866-578-0903. You can also email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We are at Sound of Ideas. Chief Justice, What happens when there aren't enough lawyers in a community? And what do you think is behind an attorney shortage in this vast swath of Ohio, these rural areas? Well, I'll begin with the issue that was first raised by the American Bar Association in a study in 2020 and a revamped study in 2023. And they really talk about the creation of legal deserts in rural areas. Why it's happening is really antidotal. It is hard to ask an individual why you're not returning home to rural area to practice law. And it's also more difficult to say, why did you not choose to go to law school to become a lawyer? I think you see a decline in the number of individuals who are seeking to become lawyers, so law school enrollment is also down. Hmm. But the problem is real. So as you laid it out, only six counties have a significant number of lawyers. Eighty-two of our counties are underserved. 
as you demonstrated by the Harrison numbers, if you looked at Vinton, the report that I have says there are only two for the 12,000-plus citizens. So that's one for 6,000-plus residents. And for the your initiative. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. So for the average person, what is the very real impact of not having enough attorneys or lawyers around you to potentially represent you? Well, I think if you look at people's everyday life and you look at what the General Assembly is attempting to tackle is if you're an adult charged with a crime or a juvenile charged with an act of delinquency, there aren't enough lawyers to represent and protect their constitutional rights. Mm. There is not enough lawyers to actually even prosecute those cases. So the first step for the General Assembly was really taking a page out of the early 90s. There was a lack of medical professionals in rural parts of Ohio, and there was that initiative to improve the delivery health care system. And they did that through a loan repayment program for medical students, those who became doctors. So House Bill 150, which became effective January 2nd of 23, sets aside $1.5 million. And their first contract is for three years, 520 hours per year. And the loan repayment is $10,000 for each of those years. And they're really focusing on public defenders, Mm. prosecutors, court-appointed counsel. They cannot be participating in another student government loan repayment plan. And the window is still open until March 15th. And they can apply through a website at the Ohio Higher Ed. Even if you have a lawyer who's living in one of the over-represented areas, as long as they're willing to go into one of the areas that the state has targeted as underrepresented, they're still eligible as long as they meet that threshold of less than eight years of service or licensure as an attorney. Now, let me ask you, why can't uh, you be enrolled in any other state or federally funded student loan repayment or debt forgiveness program in order um, to be eligible for this repayment program? So the rules were designed by the Ohio Department of Higher Education, Mm -hmm. and they provided in their rules that that's one of the limitations. I don't know why the committee made the rules decisions that they made. Now, you were talking about this uh, medical program, um, which works very much in the same nature. Was it proven effective? Um, And are early signs of this incentive program for getting lawyers to work in rural areas, is it showing um, an effectiveness thus far? I can't tell you what the effectiveness was in the early 90s from that physician program. I know that the state rural health office was improving the pipeline of care. For our purposes, I know that the number of individuals who have applied were 39 so far as the program got 
kind of rolled out, and we've been talking on it about the program on radio shows for the last couple days, mm-hmm. really trying to do the push for March 15th. Where we end up on March 15th, we're hoping that we have a significant number of lawyers who are applying for the program. And you talked about a uh, decline in in those going to law school. Do you think there should be a more uh, on-the-ground attempt to encourage students who, let's say, are at a four-year school or um, maybe even younger to consider law as a career or to introduce them to that field and the possibility of a job as a lawyer? Well, that is exactly our plan as we move forward. Right now, we're talking about the loan repayment plan because it's in effect. But, Jenny, you've hit the nail uh, on the head because we're looking at partnering with the Ohio Access to Justice Foundation, the Ohio State Bar Association, and we have been working with FFA, Future Farmers of America, 4-H, and the Ohio Farm Bureau, and they have state and local programs and we are connecting with them to put together a team of lawyers and judges to go in and speak to these young leaders to get them to see that service as an attorney at home would be a great benefit to their communities. And certainly due process, as as all of our rights uh, being carried out, uh, if you can have the appropriate number of lawyers uh, representing the population in any part of the state or country. Uh, Supreme Court, I mean, excuse me, Chief Justice, I wanted to ask you a question. You've been in your role as Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court for over a year now. You're the second woman to earn this position in Ohio's history. Can you reflect on your experience thus far? I think that as I look back on last year, I look at the things that we accomplished that we said early on we wanted to accomplish. So many Ohioans, as you travel Ohio on the campaign trail, talk about a lack of transparency in courts. One of those things that we did to address some of their concerns is to put a case inquiry form on our website. So if you have a case pending in a court, and you are a party or an attorney, and you want to make an inquiry as to the status of that case, you can fill that out. It goes to the case management section of the Supreme Court of Ohio, and they make an inquiry as to what is the status of the case. The other issue that a number of people addressed is we have time guideline requirements under the rules of superintendents. They want to know how do their judges compare to other judges and what is the timeliness of resolution of cases in their county. So instead of us interpreting the data, they can go look up their individual judge and their case statistical reporting form of overage cases. I think those two things impacted transparency. I think the assignment of judges program and bringing what I call service outreach and the value proposition of ensuring predictability and consistency or consistency in the application of the guidelines 
really helped us address a significant delay where you could be waiting for anywhere from a couple days to weeks to even a month for the assignment of a judge. We have now brought the program so that judges are being assigned within a little bit more than a half hour of the request being made at the court, sometimes as quickly as 15 minutes Mm. um, for us to call the prospective assigned judge to get them to agree to take the case. We also are looking at those value propositions as it relates to really closing that gap on the reentry population, something that I've talked about my entire career. You saw that the executive branch is working on this coalition for reentry for people, individuals who are restored citizens timed out. Mm. We're looking at the perspective of the task force addressing what are the needs and services for individuals that are being released on judicial release. And judicial release and or release, while a criminal case is still pending, impacts not only those who are sitting in local jails, but also state institutions. We launched the task force last June, and the final report is due this June with recommendations of how we can close the gap and ensure that that restored citizen lives the life restored. Okay, I have one uh, last question for you. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court in November announced it was formally adopting a new code of conduct following allegations of ethics violations by Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, who took trips funded by Republican donors without disclosing them. Some of these allegations led to growing distrust of the highest court in the land. Do you think there is a lack of trust when it comes to our state Supreme Court? And um, how does the court operate to kind of show that politicization is, is not a part of its actions? Well, part of Ohio and the disciplinary process is a reporting requirement that all judges have and have had for as long as I can remember. My financial disclosure form is available. People ask for it all the time so they can see where I bank. They Mm. can see um, where my retirement assets are, who my family or friends are that I've received a gift from in any given year. Our travel is also required to be disclosed. So if you looked at my travel a couple of years ago, you will see that the United States Marine Corps invited me to speak at the Naval Justice Institute on Ethics. So the Department of Defense, the Department of the Navy paid for that trip. So all of that has been publicly disclosed, similar to other branches of government where representatives or elected officials serve through the Ethics Commission. The one thing that I would say about state courts is The National Center of State Courts did a poll in 2023, and it was really a confidence poll about what the residents or those who took the survey, a thousand, felt about institutions. And still, um, state courts were ranked higher than any of the others, above a state legislator, the governor, federal courts, or the U.S. Supreme Court. The state courts maintained a high level of confidence in the institution. 
So I would think that part of that is the fact that we've had these disciplinary rules in the Code of Conduct and the governance of the bar and the judiciary for such a long time. I want to thank Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy for coming on to speak with me about the Rural Practice Incentive Program. Again, you can apply until March 15th to potentially be reimbursed towards your student loans for working in a rural area and giving three years of service to a community. We will have a link to that program on today's show page at ideastream.org slash SOI. Thank you so much, Chief Justice. Thank you, Jenny. And thank you to your listeners. I appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Time now for a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about Ohio's primary. Early voting begins next week. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. You're with The Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks for being with us this hour. Ohio will hold its primary on March 19th, where voters in each party will make their choices for U.S. president, U.S. Senate, and numerous other races, including many judicial races. Primary election winners will go on to the general election in November. Now, voters didn't always have a say in who would be the party's candidates. Primaries became in, came into play in the early and mid-20th century as part of a progressive push to give the people more power in selecting the candidates vying to represent them. We're going to talk a little about the history of primaries today and how Ohio's primary works. We're also going to dig into some of the races voters will be deciding on March 19th and how all of this shapes up as we head towards November 5th. Joining me to discuss the primary and how we got to this process, I am joined in studio by Dr. Tom Sutton, interim provost and professor of political science at Baldwin Wallace University. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Jenny. Also in studio, we have Matt Cox. He is president and founder of Capital Partners, a lobbying and media consulting firm. Matt, great to see you. Thanks, Jenny. And by phone, we have Ifeolu Clater. He is the treasurer of the Northeast Ohio Young Black Democrats. Ifeolu, good morning to you. Good morning. If you'd like to join the conversation or have a question, call 866-578-0903. Once again, that toll-free number, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org or tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. Okay, Tom, we're going to get a bit of a uh, kind of history lesson here with you and start with how we got to the primary system we currently have now. Uh, Voters didn't always have a say earlier on in the election process. Correct. So um, basically the history is that for a long time, throughout the 19th century, um, we had uh, essentially a mix of a party system, caucus system. So you had uh, party regulars who became officials at the local level and then at the state level, and they would then be the ones who chose delegates to a presidential convention. They would choose the candidates who would run for nomination for their um, parties. And it's really not until the progressive era, um, like 1890 to 1910, that you had this idea that the people should have more of a voice. This is when we amended the Constitution for direct election of senators. Um, and it kind of went along with those same ideas. So you began to see primaries. It was actually uh, Robert La Follette who introduced this idea and who also then ran for president under that system in 1912, did not get the nomination. 
Um, and then it kind of fell off for a little bit during the teens and 20s uh, when we went more conservative. We had Republican office holders in the White House. It was moving back into a caucus and party system. But then it started to reemerge, uh, particularly after World War II, and really got going in the 1960s. So, for instance, 1960, when Kennedy ran against Johnson, against Johnson, Johnson was backed by the party regulars, the bosses, we might say, in the party. But Kennedy really used the primaries to show he had the popular support and in the end got the nomination. 68, the famous Democratic convention where all heck broke loose because of the anti-war movements and right. Kennedy's assassination and everything else that happened. It was the party regulars who essentially said, we want Humphrey and knocked out Eugene McCarthy and some of the other more progressive candidates, even though they were showing more support in what were then the primaries. At that time, we had less than a dozen states actually using primaries. So it's after that that we start to see what we now know today. So on the Democratic side, you have primaries. Um, primarily, they're caucuses in some states like Iowa. Mm -hmm. But they also have a system that picks delegates to the presidential nomination, plus nominating their own candidates for other offices. But they have sets of delegates. There's the pledge delegates, the ones that are voted for a particular candidate. They do a proportional system in Ohio and other states where you get a percentage of the delegates depending on your percentage of the vote. Right. And then at the end, you also have these delegates that are unpledged and they're office holders. They represent constituencies like women, labor, uh, people of color, et cetera. Republican side, most of those are winner take all. They don't have special constituencies and they have very <laughs> few unpledged delegates. It's a very simple system that was really inaugurated by Nixon when he was running for reelection in 72. Now, let me ask you this. The push for primaries was part of a larger progressive push that gave Ohio power, Ohio voters power. We haven't seen an action recently in the vote to approve a reproductive health freedom amendment last fall. I'm sorry. Tell me that again. Well, so do you think that we have seen um, kind of the voters call to action manifest or kind of actualize in a greater way with some of these amendments? Oh, absolutely. And that was also a progressive era reform to right. put direct ballot uh, ballots on the election, um, direct issues on the ballot to mend constitutions. <clears throat> I think you see a lot more activism around ballot issues than you do in primaries. Okay. So primaries tend to be a much smaller, <clears throat> excuse me, percentage of the registered voters. In Ohio, for instance, we get a label as a Democrat or a Republican based on voting in a primary. Ohio has... 947,000 registered Democrats, 836,000 registered Republicans, even though we think of ourselves as a Republican That's state. That's interesting. 6.2 million independents, meaning that they have not voted in a primary in the last two years. Do you think that's a deficit when you have that kind of spread and, and the number of people not voting potentially in a primary? It's definitely a situation where the party regulars, if you will, the party bosses have been replaced by party activists that are in those primaries. So a very tiny part of the registered voters on either side are the ones actually picking these nominees, whether it's for the Senate, it's for the state house, it's for the presidency. Um, and so that's the issue that we have right now because they tend to be more extreme. They're not thinking as much about who's electable like party regulars and sure. bosses are. They're thinking about who represents my values, what I'm interested in, and those tend to be the ones more to the right and more to the left. Well, yeah, and it's also a reflection of the fact that in rural areas, Republicans don't need to really vote in primaries, and in urban areas, Democrats don't really need to vote in primaries. Really so point. you kind of create these you know, group of independents that aren't really independent, but they're just registered that way because right. they don't vote. Right. All right. Well, 
If Aolu, I, I want to bring you into the conversation. There recently was a push by lawmakers in Columbus to close Ohio's primary. One bill would have required voters to register with a party well in advance. It doesn't appear there's enough time for that to happen. But what about these proposals in general to close the primary? Uh, I think that it's something that that certain states have done where you have to be registered with that party in advance. I think ultimately that would decrease turnout. Uh, we see that some things that the state legislature has done uh, in recent years has ultimately uh, has been in, in an effort to decrease turnout uh, and to make it harder for folks to vote because folks who are not of priv- who who are without privilege um, don't have the luxury of having access to the information or, or of the time to even search for the right information to make sure that they're registered with the party because someone in Columbus told them, that, somebody working in Columbus told them that they had to register with the party before showing up to the primary. Um, so they're creating more work for voters and particularly for voters who don't have means. Matt, I'm wondering uh, one impact we've been talking about of having an open primary is that independent voters can have a say. Do you expect independent voters this year to be critical? Um, do you, excuse me, uh, in 2024? You've seen um, efforts in Ohio in the past to have Democrats vote in the Republican primary when you have maybe some um, far-right candidates that a more moderate Republican candidate is is running against. I I don't see us moving to a closed primary system. I think you know, just even myself, someone who's who's um, very tuned to what what issues there are and what candidates there are. I mean, I, it's very easy for me to. I mean, I've always voted in a Republican primary, but it's very easy to think that's that's how I get registered to vote as as a particular right. member of a party. So I think if you're if you're interested in that, that's a, that's an easy way to do it, as opposed to having to take the extra step of going to a board of elections or filling out a form ahead of time and registering for a party. Um, but, you know, I think there, there will always be kind of efforts to drag independence into certain primaries based on the candidates that are involved. But, you know, we'll see what happens with that this March. Tom, is it unusual for uh, an incumbent president to have a challenger? How much impact does this have um, when we look towards March 19th? So um, it's really the impact is not so much on whether that person is going to keep the nomination um, in all the challenges we've had that incumbent president get the nomination. Really, the impact is on the general election because essentially a slice of your electorate has chose has chosen to back a challenger. So this is part of what happened in 1976 when Gerald Ford was challenged by Ronald Reagan in 1980 when Jimmy Carter, the incumbent, was challenged by uh, Ted Kennedy. Uh, we really haven't seen anything like that since then, although there's this uh, we have Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's now running as an independent, but was in the Democratic nomination process. Dean Phillips doesn't seem to be holding any water in terms of challenging Joe Biden. We had Pat um, Buchanan in 92. Uh, oh, that's right. We had Pat Buchanan challenging George H.W. in 92. And between that and the independent candidacy of Ross Perot, that's a lot of why, when you look at the numbers, um, Bill Clinton won and George H.W. Bush uh, lost. So, Matt, you know, there's a lot of talk in kind of the ether about Ohio's primary not really mattering, mattering. Um, What do you what would you say about the primary's relevance? I mean, do you think it's in the bag as far as who are presidential contenders in? Yeah, I think it's definitely in the bag for presidential. I don't see how Trump loses a primary. I don't see how. I mean, there aren't there aren't very many times when a standard bearer like Kasich won against Trump in the primary um, in '16, but that was because he was governor, and I think he was had a lot of goodwill at that point. Um, but the primary matters to every other election in Ohio: the U.S. Senate race, the 
a bunch of state rep and state senate races um, on down the line. So the primary election is very important um, to every other race, I think, except for the one for president. The other point I would make about primaries, particularly because we have such a segmented um, set of maps for all the states, most of the states, um, where you have these dominant parties that really the primary becomes the general election for all intents and purposes, the primary is critically important for that perspective and also because that's where your challenges come, not from the other party, but from your own party. And that's a lot of what we see on both sides, uh, progressive challenging what's considered a moderate Democrat, a mega Republican challenging someone who might be considered more of a moderate mainstream Republican. If Aolu, I'm going to turn a listener email to, to you. Tom writes and asks, I am interested in this question. Does the Democratic Party have a backup plan because the current plan of all in on Biden seems risky? What is your perspective? You know, we've seen op-eds from The New York Times uh, questioning Biden's age and mental capacity. Um, What do you think about his chances and uh, the Democrats kind of pushing for the current president to be the main guy against Trump? Uh, I don't believe that the party really the party has a, a backup plan. But I would say with regard to concerns of age and competency, uh, the current President Biden is not that much older than uh, former President Trump. Um, and with regards to competency, I think when we think about some of the statements that former President Trump has made on this campaign trail, uh, particularly in regards to kind of his uh, his revenge seeking against political opponents um, and some of those, some of the things that he's alluded to in that area of expertise, uh, I think that's a broader question that the media is focusing on when it comes to President Biden and not necessarily looking across the aisle um, at the opposition. Uh, I think one thing just kind of on the last thread about the primaries mattering or not mattering, uh, a lot of voters feel like when they come to the come to vote in the general election that they're choosing between the lesser of two evils and you might have a better option if more people participated and paid attention in the primaries. Uh, because in counties like Cuyahoga uh, or in counties that are definitely going to vote more Republican, that might be your opportunity to find a better than the lesser of two evils. So to if Aolu's point, I'd love uh, Matt to, to weigh, on, weigh in on this. Do you think the media is over-concerned about uh, President Biden and his ability to uh, carry out another four years in the term? Or is there an optics issue going on when it comes to President Biden versus Trump, who is only a couple of, you know, several years younger? I think it's both. Um, there's a New York Times parody account on Twitter that, that had a, a post the other day that said, you know, Trump. Uh, convicted of sexual assault, yada, yada, yada. But is Biden too old? You know, like that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> um, but it is also optics. I mean, he Biden looks, I mean, if someone can look older than 80, Biden looks older than 80. And he has a hard time getting the words out. And he doesn't portray a, a, a command um, in front of cameras. Um, clearly, he has a command of issues. Clearly, he's running the country well enough for Democrats to try and believe him. But it is it is a mix of both. I think the media is making too much of it in a way, but also it's real. I mean, there are people who are just cannot stand the thought of another Trump presidency, but who do not like Biden at all. And so where do they go? Right. And for reference, the age gap, it's 81 to 77, President Biden being 81. Right. And former President Trump, 77 years old. Right. So a four year age difference, which is is not much at all. 
Let's talk about uh, former President Trump's uh, legal issues. He's facing dozens of felony counts spread across multiple districts. How do these legal battles impact the primary and the election in general? Matt, I'm going to go back to you for that 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 answer. I'm sorry, the question was? Trump's facing all of these yeah. felony counts. How do his legal battles impact the primary and the election in general? Well, so far they haven't, other than to rally his supporters. Um, I think when it comes to the general, you know, We'll just have to see what happens. Um, I think there, is some, there are some hiccups in the Georgia case. I think um, the, the D.C. documents case has kind of seemed to be stalled. I think everyone knows that all of the legal issues and everything's baked in with Trump, I think. So the voters have already decided, OK, there's all of this stuff, all of this chaos, all this legal issues. I'm going to put that aside and vote for the guy that I think I want to be president based on what I don't know. But so when it gets to the general, I don't see it mattering very much unless there's something else that comes out that is just so overwhelmingly bad. But every time you think that happens, then nothing happens. Right. Can I make a slight response to that? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think that something that I think that there's uh, Matt mentioned some hiccups in the case in Georgia. And there are some some concerns when it comes to some of the person now on the case in Georgia. But as far as the facts of the case there aren't necessarily hiccups. I think there's been some questions of some um, personnel ethics when it comes to personal relationships, but not with regards to the handling of the case uh, and the facts of the case. That's one thing when people, because I've heard some some Trump supporters, I've, I found myself in some conversations kind of unexpectedly um, with people who support uh, former President Trump discussing uh, these cases and kind of looking at these as a witch hunt. And I've always reminded them, like, let's be very, very, very clear. A Republican Secretary of State is who, who released that, that, who recorded the phone call with former President Trump and who released it. That That's kind of an open and shut case for trying to steal an election there. Um, and so I think that's something that needs to be recognized on on every record and discussion with these cases if there's one case that to me at least seems airtight and i'm not an attorney um is it's the georgia case well but i think trump also is is a pro at not letting facts get in the way of a good narrative and that's what's going on right alternative facts (laughs) him and kellyanne conway and alternative facts that is their specialty you're right well, and Tom, what is the polling showing when it comes to how the public is receiving, whether it's, you know, former President Trump's legal issues or President Biden's age? What's mattering to people? Well, we've seen <clears throat> uh, Biden's approval rating drop into the mid 30s, uh, and it's largely because of the age issue and, and really significant majorities that are saying that they would like to see an alternative and that their biggest concern is about his age followed by their concern about his handling of the economy. In those same areas, no one seems to have a concern about Trump's age. There are pretty significant independents. If you look at independents that are probably about split, maybe a little bit, 55% that are saying they're they're concerned about Trump in terms of his statements, in terms Mm -hmm. of some of his positions. Um, But he doesn't get nearly the same kind of attention related to age. So Again, I, I'm going to hold to my position that whatever happens, presuming we're talking about these two as the nominees in the general election, I think part of what we're going to see is that those undecideds mm-hmm. and those folks that are in that camp of lesser of two evils or I don't want either one are going to stay home. And we're going to see a lower voter turnout, I think, much lower compared to 2020. 
But also, let's not let's not forget the fact that the Republican Party itself also feels like it's on the precipice here because they can't change either. Right. Um, and you saw what happened in New York last night and in other special elections around the country. And in the last general election, um, you know, Republicans can't turn around and say Trump go away or else they're going to get destroyed right. by Trump. Right. If he's the nominee, they might get destroyed by voters. They know exactly the position that they're in. And it's a lot it's a lot similar to where the uh, D's are. All right. Let's turn to uh, the U.S. Senate race. Matt. The U.S. Senate Republican primary between Bernie Marino, Frank LaRose, Matt Dolan. Do you think this is a test of Trump's power here? It will be. I think Trump is the only reason why J.D. Vance is a U.S. senator. He was third or fourth in that primary. Trump endorses him. Shot right up. And he shot right up and he won. Um, And so this time he endorsed Bernie. You know, Bernie doesn't have – he hasn't yet shown the kind of skill that J.D. Vance did in, in capitalizing on that endorsement. I think fewer people know about Bernie than they did J.D. just because of the history with the book and everything. And then you got Frank LaRose and Matt Dolan, who've, who've gone the traditional route of being a state legislator, state senator, you know, for, in Frank's case, a statewide office holder. Um, both have deep pockets of support. It's still kind of up in the air in my mind. Yeah, I would say the same thing. Um, and if I were Sherrod Brown, it would be kind of hard. You, you could say pluses and minus about whichever one of those you'd wind up running against. But yeah. the bottom line is that at least from a campaign perspective and reelection perspective, Sherrod Brown would definitely be a strong opponent to any one of those as a candidate. Is that what the polling's showing? Uh, the polling's, there hasn't been that much. And okay. what it's, it's showing, it's tending to more focus just on the primary itself. Um, and there's one or two situations where if you just said party and you didn't say name, you'd see Republican uh, dominating in that respect. If Aolu, we certainly, uh, you know, understand the national implications of this race, uh, Sherrod Brown being the last remaining statewide elected Democrat. What are your thoughts? Well, the last remaining statewide uh, on the federal, because we do have um, Democrats on the Ohio Supreme Court. And as we look at the primary and the general, we have there's actually an opportunity for the Democrats to take control of of the Ohio Supreme Court. Um, so just wanted to highlight that. Uh, but I think it's crucial. I think that there are some folks who have, there are some folks nationally who have kind of thought about Ohio more as a Republican state. Uh, and I think Cher Brown kind of shows, gives those folks another option and makes people think twice about uh, only considering Ohio to be a Republican state. Uh, outside of Cher, it's, it's difficult. I've worked on statewide campaigns um, for Democrats. It can be, it can be difficult to uh, kind of get your message out there because I think that they're, and I think this is on both sides where one party hears that somebody's of another party and, and almost the conversation is almost immediately shut down based on the opposing party's views of your party's um, opinions on things and, and automatically applying those opinions or perspectives to you um, and, this, and the stereotypes that come with uh, different parties. Matt, I want to ask you about what you think are the most prominent issues that the Republicans in this race are focused on that are resonating with voters. I mean, you know, I see a lot of um, news coverage of what's happening on the border. They're, they're you know, sitting in um, a lot of attack ads, that topic. Do you think that is a driver for voters, what's happening down on the border? Absolutely. It's I mean, it's immigration, it's crime, which to a lot of Republicans is the same. Right. Um, and then it's Donald Trump. Like those are the three that that is that is it. And so you have all three candidates who are the same on immigration and crime. 
and you have one Matt Dolan who's different on Trump and who's trying to carve a lane to make that matter. But to me, those are the only three issues. I think abortion's been settled, so that's not going to be much of an issue. They can talk about it being pro-life, but it's not going to matter too much because we had those amendments last year. That, I mean, that's, the, that's about it. And, and if Aolu, I'd love for you to weigh in on how, um, you know, as a candidate, uh, Sherrod Brown kind of responds to those issues because we, we, you have no idea if, you know, independence uh, um, might kind of weigh towards one direction or another when it comes to specific issues. Can you repeat that for me one more time? Sorry. I'm, <laughs> uh, I was just wondering, do you think when it comes to the border issues, um, whether, you know, Sherrod Brown is going to have to combat that head on and, and, and talk to, you know, the electorate as a whole about where he stands on that? Um, I'm not necessarily sure, to be honest with you, especially understanding that that's even though Sherrod Brown does pull from Senator Brown does pull from uh, Republican constituencies when it comes to him running. I think that there are issues, particularly when it comes to domestic issues. Well, immigration is a domestic issue, but thinking about other domestic issues when it comes to workers' rights, when it comes to jobs and particularly unions uh, and jobs staying in the United States and support for our veterans and, and naval and uh, military personnel. Um, I think those things are things where he stands really strongly on. I've heard Republicans who who uh, are military veterans who have com- who have commented on his support for the military and for especially for veterans and for troops coming back from serving overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are certain things in Sher Brown's character and his reputation that he's built that I'm not sure that him having a strong voice or, or taking a stance or a public stance on immigration uh, is going to have a large effect. All right. We'll have to leave it there. A reminder that registration for the primary ends next Wednesday on February 20th. Early voting begins a week from today. My thanks to Matt Cox from Capital Partners and Ifeolu Clater with the Northeast Ohio Young Black Democrats. Tom, we're going to ask you to stick around for a few minutes. So thank you. The voter registration deadline is Tuesday the 20th. Early voting starts on Wednesday. Ah, thank you for that clarification. Tuesday is the 20th. The 21st is Wednesday when early voting starts. All right. Thank you so much. Absolutely. (laughs) Stand corrected. Time now to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll talk to the director of the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections about a public test of its vote tabulation system happening this week. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideas Stream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for staying with us. The stolen election claims made by Donald Trump over his loss to Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election have indeed taken a toll on voter trust in the election system. A recent poll from the Associated Press and the Newark Center for Public Affairs found that just 22 percent of Republicans say they have high confidence that the votes in the 2024 presidential election will be counted accurately. That compares to 71 percent of Democrats. This Friday, the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections will perform a public test of the voting equipment that will be used to tabulate the primary results. Joining me now to talk about the test is the director of the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections, Anthony Perlotti. Also with me in studio still is Dr. Tom Sutton, interim provost and professor of political science at Baldwin-Wallace University. Welcome back, Tom, and welcome to to you, Anthony. Uh, Good morning, and thank you for having me. Of course. If you'd like to join the conversation or have a question, call 866-578-578. 
888-900-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. Tony, this public test is done regularly, but the board really wants to emphasize that people can see how this all works. So that that is correct. So before every election, uh, we are required to do a public test of our voting equipment um, to to ensure that the equipment is ready and uh, for tabulation and that it's you know it's going to work correctly. And so these are always open to the public, and we kind of always put the word out there. A lot of times, usually no takers, but in a presidential election year, people just are naturally more engaged in the process, and we really are pushing to have folks come down uh, to our our offices this Friday for this. And if we can get folks there, we also want to show them more than the public test. We want to show them some things behind the scenes with uh, vote by mail and, and let them touch the scanners and ask questions about it and get a little bit more involved. So um, we're hoping that to get a good crowd because we have nothing to hide. We want people to know that. We want to be transparent. We always are. And this is a great opportunity to showcase that. Tony, how much do you think what happened in 2020 and kind of the aftermath and the discussions of election systems and whether, um, you know, they are being faithfully executed in our elections has gone into the board's thinking about making sure that the public knows exactly what you're doing? So it's it, it does impact how we try to advertise these things. Our actual operations don't change. And, and things that we did prior to 2020 are things that we're still doing now because election integrity is not a new thing. It's something that we live and breathe all the time every day we come to work. And but, we, but other individuals don't realize that. And so this is now a lot of things were kind of called into question. There's a lot of false information out there. And states operate differently. There's a lot of you know, election laws change from state to state. And so national news, while good, um, puts things out there that maybe can't even happen. So we want to make sure that we're putting more effort into getting people to come visit us, to ask those questions. Um, to to read the things that we put out uh, for publication, to try to get that uh, confidence uh, in in the voting electorate. Now, Tom, as someone who teaches politics and you obviously conduct polling, how much damage has been done, in your perspective, to election trust in the past four or so years? Well, I think here in Ohio, we haven't really seen what we've seen in some other states. I think generally the level of trust is pretty high. Um, there tends to be distrust of what's happening in other states, uh, particularly states that are seen as more democratic, like uh, what happened in Georgia. Uh, Michigan sometimes gets targeted uh, by people who are concerned, and some of that's just partisan. Um, I actually did a series of focus groups for a client this summer in southeast Ohio, and this was a direct question that was asked, what was your level of trust? And when I asked specifically about how elections are conducted in Ohio and their local elections, the trust levels were very high. Mm. Now, in rural areas where you might expect some of that distrust to come from because of the constituency and who they support, et cetera, it's just the opposite because in rural areas, counties with populations of 30,000, 40,000 people, where the county seat, everybody goes to all the time because that's where you do your business, they know the people that are working the polls. They know the people at the Board of Elections, and they trust them because they're neighbors, they're friends. 
a version of that happens in our precincts. When I go to vote in person, it's pretty much the same people that are working those polls. Thank goodness for their work and for the work of Anthony and his his team. Um, and that trust really builds from that personal relationship. And so I think that's what you see much more common here in Ohio than maybe you see in other states where you see more of the suspicion. So then is there a disconnect between when you see these prominent politicians talking about how the elections are rigged and, 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 and you can't trust, you know, the the people working at the polls, um, do you think it just kind of falls on deaf ears or it, it is having an impact on some, but not as much as, you know, we think? Well, I think what you're seeing is that because uh, former President Trump made such a big issue out of his loss being due to manipulation, due to not, votes not being counted, et cetera, um, he galvanized his supporters to basically believe the same thing. Uh, and again, knowledge of how this all works is pretty low, and particularly when you get into the technical side, which is why what uh, Mr. Pilati and others are doing to try to make this public is a great effort. Um, and the more that that gets covered by the media will be helpful as well. But the nuts and bolts, the details of how this all works, because the same people also are concerned about election security. Sure. So some of what people don't understand is that on the one hand, you want to be transparent about how we do this and be able to see it for yourself. But on the other hand, you want to secure those votes. You want to make sure that there isn't the possibility of manipulation or a miscount, et cetera. So I'm curious, Tony, I mean, what kind of work do you do to make sure that the elections and the tabulation and voting is secure? So our, you know, there's there's phys- there's different layers. There's physical security um, in our operations where you have certain rooms that you need a Democrat and a Republican to have their key cards program that they have access, and those and a Democrat and Republican have to hit the key access uh, in, in in close proximity in order to unlock the door. Um, Things like some computer systems, you there's the password, a Democrat has half, a Republican has the other half, and there's only select people who know that, and unless they come together, you can't get into certain systems. So you have physical things like that, rooms that have two different locks on them that you can't get access to, security cameras and things like that. And then there's a whole layer of cybersecurity where the Secretary of State Every year publishes a new cybersecurity directive in which we have to uh, follow and we implement, and we have all of those safeguards in place. So there's a lot of things that we have, physical, cyber, to keep things safe, uh, to keep things secure. And then things like voting machines, the, the software system to create the ballot, tabulate the ballot, are not connected to the Internet. They don't even have the capability. They don't have modems in them to remotely connect in or those types of things. So things happen on a standalone network. So there's an air gap. Um, and so there's a lot of things like that that help to keep this secure um, from bad actors and then from internal actors, the logging that you have to do to be able to get into certain areas to touch something. Oh. Uh, is, is Those things are in place. Okay, so that's the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections conducting its voting system public test at 9.30 on Friday. The public is welcome. Director Perlotti expressed that he wants people to attend. So I want to thank Tony Perlotti, director of the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections, for joining us. And also my thanks to Dr. Tom Sutton of Baldwin Wallace University. Always great to have you. And thank you to you both. Thank you. 
Thank to you. See you, Jenny. And again, you can find a link on the board's website and on our show page today as well. Now, to get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We are on Twitter, now X, at Sound of Ideas. You can follow me at Jenny Hamill underscore. If you missed any portion of the program, find us online or listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for listening. I'll speak with you tomorrow.